Well, good morning, church. Uh, let me uh, welcome you, whether you're uh, joining us in the room or whether you're joining us online. Um, we are grateful that you're joining us for uh, this holiday weekend. And this morning, uh, we get the privilege uh, to step into a short six-week sermon series on the book of Psalms. And this is going to take us through the summer up until school uh, starts back in August. And I love the Psalms because the Psalms uh, put words on our lips for all kinds of situations. If you're walking through suffering and uncertainty, or if you're walking through fear and anxiety, or if you're walking through melancholy and, and sadness, you will find in the Psalms words of comfort, words of mercy to meet you wherever you are. And if you're walking through victory and gladness, if you're walking in confidence and hope in what God has done for you, you will find in the psalm shouts of praise and poems of encouragement to spur you on to continue walking in victory and gladness, confidence, and hope. And I love how the commentator Jim Hamilton uh, unpacks for us the psalms in his commentary. He says this, that the psalms are true history fulfilled prophecy, enduring praise. The Psalms are a school of prayer, a fountain of truth, a revelation, a revealing of God himself. And we will not master this book, but oh, that we might be mastered by it. That it might become the pulse to which our hearts beat and the soil in which our souls take root. And I really pray that that would be true for us over the next six weeks, that we might find songs of hope and confidence, that we might find a pulse for our hearts to beat and soil in which our souls grow. And if you have your Bible this morning, I would encourage you to open to Psalm 2, right at the beginning of the book. We're, we're beginning here because along with Psalm chapter 1, uh, it serves as the introduction for the whole book of Psalms. A lot of people know Psalm 1, but Psalm 2 is a little bit less familiar, so it's important to read them together. And if, if Psalm 1 sets before us the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, um, you know, the blessed man who walks not in uh, the counsel of the wicked, but he trusts in the Lord, he, he loves the Lord, he delights in his law and meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf never withers. All that he does prospers. If, if Psalm 1 sets before us the blessing of the man who loves the Lord and walks in his way, Psalm 2 sets before us the same thing on a political scale. Psalm 2 tells us that blessing comes through the king that God has set on his throne and the wicked nations conspiring against the Lord and against his king are like the chaff that are driven away by the wind. And so if we take Psalm 1 and 2 together, we get the main point of the Psalms, which says that the Lord God is the exalted ruler over all creation who rules by sovereign grace and power in order that his people might submit eagerly to his kingship by faith and by obedience to the law. And Psalm 2 is 
a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that would be used at the crowning of a king of Israel. And on May the 6th of this year, for the first time in 70 years, we saw the public coronation of a king. And you'll have to forgive me for using an illustration from England on the 4th of July weekend. Just (laughs) forgive me. I know we don't have a king, but the illustration's there and we're going with it. We saw it, right? There he is with his crown and his scepter and the orb. It was two months ago. So at this point, you know, we probably have all forgotten about it, but it was significant. It was meaningful. It was a big deal. And I I think there are just very few moments in our life today where history and tradition and pomp and circumstance and and significance and honor uh, attracts the attention of the whole world. And yet for just a few hours in May, we saw the anointing, the crowning, the pledging of faithfulness to a new king. And it was weighty and serious. It was full of symbolism and meaning. It was moving and beautiful. And though it has been rare in our day and our time, I think that background can add color to our Bible reading. Our imaginations are are so impoverished, right? We don't have a king and we're we're quite proud of that. Thank you very much. But, But this earthly weighty coronation helps us rightly consider the glory and the honor that that are due to God as the king over all things. And so I wanna keep that background in our mind as we read Psalm 2 together. Let's keep this coronation there because that's the setting of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 would have been used, it would have been recited at the crowning of a king of Israel. And so with that in mind, let's read it together. And as we do, I would invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word. And if you're new to Shades or new to church, we stand at the reading of God's word because we believe as the people of God that God's word is the foundation that we stand upon. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. It shows us what we need to hear, what we need to obey. It shows us who God is. It shows us what he has done for us. And it points us to the hope that we have in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's read Psalm chapter two, beginning in verse one. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we are so thankful that you give us your word that teaches us about who you are and what you've done. I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding of your word that we might live. Remind us that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we thank you that long ago you spoke in many times and in many ways, but in these days you have shown and spoken to us in your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened as we study your word, that we might see the hope to which we have been called, and that we might honor and worship you rightly as the king over all things. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would show us what we need to see and what we need to hear, and we pray that you would give us hearts eager to obey and eager to submit to your rule and your reign over our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you uh, for standing with us. So in, in these days, in the time when Psalm 2 uh, would have been written, the coronation of a king is actually very vulnerable uh, for the, the people. Um, un, unlike the British monarchy, which is, you know, ceremonial, there's not a whole ton of like ruling and governing power uh, there. If there was no king in Israel, it was a free-for-all opportunity for the enemy nations to kind of creep in and take some land, to rebel, to uh, do what they needed to do while everything was uncertain. This new king was unproven, and so here's our opportunity. Let's do it. And Psalm 2, I think, speaks into this very real time of vulnerability for the people, and it reminds them of this main point, that because the sovereign Lord rules and reigns from his heavenly throne, his people on earth can find refuge in his anointed king. And so the psalm breaks for us into three uh, verses apiece with four sections. So the sermon is gonna have four points. So if you're following along, listen for those. And uh, I wanna start with verses one through three. Verses one through three show us that it is foolish and futile to oppose the Lord's anointed king. Foolish and futile to oppose the Lord's anointed king. The psalmist begins in verse one with a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? It's a question of amazement. It's a question of, of anger at the brazen attempt for these enemies of God to overthrow the kingdom of God. And it's almost as if here in this first section, we're given just a little peek into a back room meeting where all of the enemies of God have gathered together and they're saying, all right, this is a new king. This is our opportunity. What can we do? What's our plan? How are we gonna attack? This is our time. And you know, if, if a, a group of kings gets together, 
they make an alliance and they marshal their troops, typically, right, that's, that's some cause for alarm and some, some concern. I mean, this is what the text says, that the kings of the earth set themselves. They, they, they're stealing themselves for an attack. And they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Oh man, the people of Israel, they, they've, they've got us, right? Let's be free of them. Let's get out from under this rule. The nations are meditating on their plan to destroy this new king. It's a prime opportunity to break free and break loose, to gain a little bit more for themselves. But what they fail to recognize is that in opposing the king that God has set on the throne, they're actually opposing God himself. You come against the king, you come against God. And that's why it really is foolish and futile to oppose the Lord's anointed king, his chosen king. And, and I think it's just helpful for us to be reminded that there really is nothing new under the sun. From the beginning of creation, right? God has called people to love him, to serve him, to, to walk in his ways, to delight in his law, just like Psalm 1 tells us to consider how to live wisely in the world that he has created and given to us as a gift. And yet from Genesis three onward, we've all become rebels in our hearts. Every person in his or her own way has been plotting in our heart how to throw off the rule and the reign of God over us. Adam and Eve did it by taking the fruit and determining good and evil for themselves. And each of us in our own ways have been taking the fruit and determining good and evil on our own ways. We've not been walking in the Lord's ways that he has set out for us. We're all rebels at heart. And I think that what's true individually is also true on a geopolitical level. Nations and kings and rulers continue to oppose the Lord, continue to oppose his authority. The nations have always raged, raged against the sovereign God and the peoples have always plotted harm against the people of God. And I'm so thankful for these three verses here at the very beginning of Psalm 2 that just keeps a check on our perspective. We need to be reminded of these things. Whether we're keeping up... Uh, with wars and coups or whether we're keeping up with the most recent ideological skirmishes in the culture or the election cycle or whatever it is, we're reminded here in the first three verses that it really is foolish and it really is futile to try to throw off God's rule and God's reign over us. And we're in good company when, when we let Psalm 2 remind us of this, because would you believe that in the New Testament, the apostle Peter takes these first couple of verses of Psalm chapter two and recalls them to mind and uses them for confidence, uses them for encouragement. Acts chapter four, verses 23 through 26, Peter and John have been, in prison, have been uh, they've been preaching and they've performed a miracle in Jesus's name. And that preaching and that miracle has landed them in prison. And Acts chapter four tells us what happens when they get out of prison, when they're released. Look at it. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when their friends heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And at the end of this text, it says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love the Psalms because they have been used by the people of God through the centuries in times of crisis and in times of turmoil and in times of victory and gladness to remind themselves that God is good, that he is our king, that he is for us. When they remembered God's word and when they prayed together, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were encouraged. They were spurred on in the face of persecution and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's good for us to hear from believers in days gone by who use the Psalms for confidence and for encouragement and for hope. It's good for us to be reminded that because the sovereign Lord rules and reigns from his heavenly throne, his people on earth can find refuge in his anointed king. Let's move on to the next section, verses four through six, which show us that the Lord reigns from heaven and his purposes will prevail. Now, depending on which side you're on, these verses are either comforting or absolutely terrifying. Let's, let's look at what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And after he finishes laughing, then it says, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I, I think these verses are so rich with irony. The little kings of the earth set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. And where is the Lord and his anointed? Seated in the heavenly places. He who sits in the heavens laughs in mockery at their plan. I mean, imagine emerging from your war room with all of your best military leaders, with all of your generals, feeling really confident and really firm in your plan to overthrow this new king who has not been seated on the throne but like 20 minutes, right? Imagine emerging from that room, hearing a deep, singular laugh at your plan. I mean, what is more terrifying as an enemy of God to hear him laugh at your little plan? You set yourself against the Lord? Oh, you think you can overthrow the king? Well, you come against the king, you come against me. Don't even think about it. I reign from heaven and from the beginning of all time at my word, creation obeys. And yet on the flip side, 
as the people of God, as this new king who's seated on his throne, what would be more encouraging? What would be more hopeful? He who sits in the heavens laughs at my enemy's plans. You think you can rage against the Lord? No, he's laughing in mockery at you. He reigns from the heaven and his purposes will prevail. Our sovereign Lord sits on the throne and everything goes his way. I mean, how could you not be filled with confident, faith-filled, defiant boldness in the face of God laughing at your enemies? If God is for us, who could be against us? In verses seven through nine, we see that after the, after the enemies speak and after God speaks, now it, the king responds. The new king who's sitting on the throne, in verse seven, he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, to our ears, that probably sounds very strange, very unusual, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Like, what, is, what does that even mean? And it is unusual, but if we're gonna understand this, there's, a, there's another important background to this phrase. And it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. We need to understand, if we're gonna understand uh, what the king is saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you, we need to understand God's covenant with David. As a coronation psalm, Psalm 2 was written, likely by David, who was the best and the greatest king of Israel, but he wasn't the first king. He was the second king. You may remember the name of the first king was Saul, and he started out really great, and eventually he just stopped following the Lord, stopped delighting in his law, stopped loving him and walking in his ways. And so in the process of Saul turning away from the Lord, the Lord took the kingdom away from him and gave it to David. And in that process of taking the kingdom away from Saul and giving it to David, God made this amazing promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. So, so look at that for context. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 7:12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is an amazing promise, an amazing covenant that God makes with King David. And did you catch it in verse 14? I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It's an amazing promise to David and to all of the kings from David's lineage who will sit on the throne. That when they're invited 
to become the king of Israel, when they are crowned, when they are enthroned, when they are seated, they become like a son to God. They, they share in the inheritance of God's kingdom and they're given the opportunity to steward God's rule and God's reign well. And in verses eight and nine, the king continues to respond, continues to recall what God said to him. Bolstered by the laughter of God in the face of his enemies and encouraged and comforted by God's fatherly care for him, he continues, ask of me, said the Lord to the king, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, and more than that, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And I wanna consider verse eight here just for a moment because I think it's significant. The king rules from his identity as God's son. The king rules from his identity as God's son. That's the third point here. Any success the king experiences, any benefits happens because the king asks and God gives. Do you want to inherit the nations? Do you want to possess the ends of the earth? They belong to me, says the Lord. Ask, and I'll make them yours. And more than that, you'll break them with a scepter of iron. You'll dash them in pieces like a clay vessel. The king's success, his rule, his reign, his throne, his kingdom, everything is a gift from the Lord. If the king loves the Lord, if the king walks in his ways, then like the blessed man from Psalm 1, he is established. He is rooted by a stream of water. All that he does will prosper. But everything flows from his identity as a son and with his relationship with God as a father. And I don't know how verse 8 hits you, but it it hits me pretty backwards because that's not how I think kings work, right? Kings can do whatever they want and they can take whatever they want because they're the king. But that's not what God's saying here. He's saying everything is a gift. It actually should create humility for the king. And it reminds me of Jesus's question in Matthew chapter seven, verses nine through 11, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who asks him? I mean, how often do we forget this? Any good thing that happens to us in our life is a gift from God. It's all grace. It's not something that we earned. It's not something that we, that we did. Yet we so often look for our identity in our work. We so often try to find our worth at home or at school or in what other people say about us. And yet for those of us who have turned from our rebellion and trusted in Jesus, 
the true king, the true son, who actually invites us into his own sonship, which means that it's the unique privilege of followers of Jesus that we have God as our father who gives us good gifts. And, and it's as followers of Jesus that we actually live from that identity as a son or a daughter of the king. We're reminded that all that happens to us is grace. And I wanna show you this in the final three verses, verses 10 through 12, where we see that it's wise to worship the Lord and to take refuge in the Son. It's wise to worship the Lord and take refuge in the Son. These concluding verses here call the nations to repentance by giving a clear warning that unless they serve the Lord with fear and trembling, the judgment of God is gonna fall on them through the king. And I think it's a warning and a call to repentance for us as well. This is what it says. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It, it, it is wise to worship the Lord and his anointed king because God truly does rule and reign through the king that he has set on his holy hill. And whether or not you kiss the sun, whether or not you submit to the king's glad rule and reign determines what you get, blessing or curse. Will you serve the Lord or will you serve yourself? Will you rage and plot in vain against the Lord? Or will you find deep roots by a stream of water where your leaf never withers? Or will you find yourself driven away like the chaff? This final verse of Psalm chapter two brings everything to a beautiful conclusion especially if you look back to Psalm 1.1. What began with blessing, blessed is the man who sits, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is that man. What started with blessing finishes with blessing. Blessed are those who take refuge in the son. The blessed man of Psalm chapter one has become the anointed king in Psalm chapter two. And I love how uh, the scholars, Paul and Elizabeth Actemeyer kind of frame this for us, right? All of the hopes, all of the expectation that is there in the crowning and enthronement and coronation of a new king, this is how they frame it. With each new king, Israel hoped anew. Israel hoped that this one would be God's perfect Messiah, the one who would bring in the golden age of each of its kings. Israel asked, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And from the time of David onward, Israel expected a ruler who would save his people a ruler who would restore to them all the goodness of the creation. And all of the kings of Israel failed to deliver on this hope, on this promise. 
Saul and David and Solomon and every king after, whether they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or whether they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, failed to faithfully represent God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. Eventually, these kings became so prideful that they ceased to ask the Lord for the nations. They ceased to receive the blessing from the Lord. They failed to rest and rule and reign from their identity as sons of God. And that, own, that forgetfulness led them to their own ruin and their own destruction. Instead of ruling with a scepter of iron and dashing their enemies, they themselves were smashed and dashed all the way into exile. And when we reach the end of the Old Testament, there is no king, there is no kingdom, there is no rule, there is no reign to speak of at all. All of God's promises to David seem to have failed. Until we turn to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and we read in the first line the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, the Christ, the son of David. Finally, is this the one who is to come? And we see at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove to anoint Jesus and we hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we see in Jesus' life a perfect reflection of what it looks like to meditate on God's law day and night who rests in his identity as God's Son that whatever the Father does, so does the Son. He does nothing of his own accord. He does only what the Father shows him. And we see at the cross the true king smashed and dashed in pieces for our rebellion and he takes the death penalty that we should have paid on himself. And yet on the third day, at his glorious resurrection, we realize that God's final enemy, death, has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. And in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, all that Jesus does prospers. And then he ascends back to the right hand of the father where he is seated on the throne, where he shares with his father his rule and his reign over all things. And we learn that everything is going his way. And as the psalmist says in verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus is the eternal son. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The nations are his heritage because he has saved a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every language. And he will rule until every enemy has been destroyed, until every enemy is put under his feet. And the question for us today is, have we, will we find refuge? in Jesus. Because what's true of the Davidic king in Psalm chapter two is ultimately true in Jesus. It is foolish, it is futile to oppose Jesus because he does rule and reign from heaven. 
and his purposes are prevailing in the world. The gates of hell are not gonna prevail against Jesus' church. He is the eternal son who rules and reigns from his identity as a son and even more invites us to share his identity. He invites us to receive adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. And we too have been rescued from our striving and our toiling to try to find our identity in what people say of us, in our work, at school or at home. For in Christ, we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we have received adoption. And the king who's seated on the throne is a good father who gives good gifts. Therefore, it's wise to serve the Lord. It's wise to worship the Lord because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Psalm 2 points us to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords. It reminds us that though the nations rage, the true King is on the throne. And because the sovereign Lord rules and reigns from his heavenly throne, his people on earth can find refuge in his anointed king, Jesus. Do you walk in open rebellion against the king today? Have you surrendered your life? Have you kissed the sun? Don't wait. His wrath is quickly kindled, but you can find refuge. You can find comfort. You can find hope in his name today. Or do you, do you already follow Jesus? Have you already gladly submitted to his kindly rule? Oh, take heart, friend. Take heart. Move out into the world with bold, defiant confidence because our king is a good father and he sits on the throne and everything is going his way. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our father, what a gift it is to be called your son and to be called your daughter. We thank you for Psalm 2, for the reminder that the nation's rage and the people's plot and it's been true for centuries. But you have set your king on Zion. You have set your king on your heavenly hill. And you have invited us into your kingdom. And so Father, we, we pray just as you taught us to pray that your kingdom would come on earth, just as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that we would, as people who have submitted to King Jesus, we pray that you would make us like the blessed man in Psalm 1, rooted and grounded. Help us to meditate on your law day and night. Help us to see the fulfillment of this law in Jesus and help us to look to him, our King. Help us to find refuge in him. Help us to worship him rightly and well. Help, him, help us to give him the glory and the honor 
that is due to his name. And as we look to him, we take heart from Psalm chapter two that we can have confidence and we can have hope, that we can press on in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of victory and gladness, we press on, trusting that you will reign until every enemy is put under your feet. We look to Christ. We see our hope, our comfort, our security in him. And we pray in his name.